This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry. You're getting real life insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? This is Dr. Nee. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Docs Outside the Box. So listen, there is a quote that says, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Most of you all recognize this quote and know that this is from Maya Angelou. And you're right. You're correct. But obviously, this is applicable to individual relationships. But in my experience, I've been able to apply this to several hospitals, medical systems during my short stint as an attending. Now, let's do a little bit of some story time, some docs outside the box story time. So back in the day when I was a fellow, and some of you all should be able to identify with this story, you know, I was on the usual interview trail. I would interview at a hospital, actually several hospitals, and shortly afterwards, after a couple of days, maybe even a week, you get a contract that's sent to you by email, or by mail, and this contract usually is in a range between three to five years. And although I wasn't as savvy back then as I am right now in terms of what I want, what's important to me, I knew even back then, even as a fellow, I knew that it was really important to delineate how often I would be on call among other things such as salary and just other things in general. So that was really big to me to make sure that it was really clear how often I was going to be on call. So there's one place in particular I want to tell you about. I'm not going to name the place. I'm not even going to name the region. All I want to let you know that it was a great location, but it had two big red flags. One is the money, the salary was grossly out of range when comparing to the average. So residents, medical students, you've probably heard this in the past. If you haven't, if there is a place that has a salary that is exorbitantly outside of the range compared to the other places, be very, very wary. So this place had one red flag, and that usually portends to they really need to pay someone a lot of money to you know go through the BS of having to work there. The other thing for me, which was a big red flag, is they could not tell me how many calls per month I was expected to take. And also, if I went past a certain number, what would happen afterwards? Now, in the world of trauma surgery, actually, this is quite common. So what I was asking for, what I wanted was not out of the ordinary. While having my contract reviewed at this one place by a lawyer, and this was within two weeks of getting the contract, the medical director at this place called me, literally was yelling at me to make a decision. Ooh, Lord. 
I'm telling you, I had to take a big deep breath after listening to this guy. I literally could hear like the spit. <laughs> this was through the phone. I could hear the spit like coming through his mouth and like hitting me in the ear proverbially. And it took a lot out of me to really keep my cool and make sure that I did not, you know, give how many Fs to him over the phone. But I took a deep breath. I kept my cool and I declined the position right there. And I thought to myself afterwards, you know, I had to talk it over with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Dr. Renee. And we basically came to the conclusion that basically if someone is willing to treat you like this before the contract has been signed, imagine how they're going to treat you once they got you locked up, right? You can't get no better. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. And this last experience really solidified my decision to go locums for the year and a half. And during that time, I learned that I could handle mostly any situation clinically. And I got to say thank you to Morehouse School of Medicine for training me, as well as University of Miami for the trauma experience also. But also, I also learned the true value of what I bring to the table clinically, as well as monetarily to a hospital. Basically, I learned how much I am worth to a hospital. And best believe that I used all of this information when negotiating my first employee gig afterwards. And although those who are listening, maybe even residents right now may think that this is an extreme example from what I'm hearing from what I'm learning from others who've gone through this process run-ins like this happen a bit more commonly than you may think and docs are either not aware of how to negotiate or just feel just clearly at a disadvantage when negotiating what they want and as a result after the case just like buying a car and not knowing and not doing your research there's a lot of regret after you sign these contracts and the advice of everything is negotiable, and I put that in quotes, sounds great in theory, but it really can cause anxiety if you don't know what the hell you're doing. So on this episode, we're going to take it back to the basics, all right? We're going to learn how to do negotiating one-on-one, and I'm bringing on notable expert Kwame Christian, who is a business lawyer as well as director of the American Negotiation Institute. And in his role conducts live negotiation and conflict resolution training sessions for organizations. He also hosts the wildly popular podcast called Negotiate Anything. And in this podcast, he interviews successful professionals and shares powerful persuasion techniques. This is the top ranked negotiation and dispute resolution podcast in the nation. And he is here to talk about the basics of negotiation from the science all the way down to the emotional aspects of it. And he's going to talk about the bag of tricks that he uses to better understand what the other side needs and how he uses this to his advantage. We're also going to go through two scenarios that newly minted medical graduates might go through when talking to prospective employers. I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss this one. He handles this like a straight ninja. And you're going to also understand why you need alternatives when you're making your best offer. I'm telling you right now, if you want to get more confident with negotiating and you're just tired of the normal, you just need to negotiate everything, this is going to be the place that you want to start. This is definitely a must listen. Make sure you share this episode with others. Make sure you share this episode with people who are still in residency, people who are in medical school, because they need to hear this. You need to start exercising these skills as early as possible. Without further ado, I present Kwame Christian host of Negotiate Anything. Kwame Christian, host of the Negotiate Anything podcast. What's up? What's good, man? Welcome to Docs Outside the Box. Nate, thank you for having me here, man. Been in talks for 
<laughs> decades. To get it's, like, it's my bad. It's my fault. <laughs> we met last year, what, in June or July at Podcast Movement, right? And we were talking, and as soon as you were telling me about you being an expert doing TED Talks and negotiation, I was like, I need to talk to you. And it's been my fault. So I got to admit, I've been the one who's fallen off. So it's all good, man. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about a subject that I think a lot of doctors really struggle with, want to know more about. And the fact that you are doing so well in this arena, the fact that you obviously are doing TED Talks now, you obviously have one of the best podcasts on Apple Podcasts. I just want to say congratulations to that. Thank you. Um, so just, you know, it's just all good to have you on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's learn a little bit about you because, you know, we met, we chatted, we politicked. I learned about you, but let's learn why we should listen to you. Who are you? And let us know about your training. So my name is Kwame Christian. I am a practicing attorney, a business lawyer by trade, but my real passion is teaching people how to negotiate and manage conflict effectively. So my background is in psychology. So I'm really obsessed with learning how people think and the decision-making process. I got swept into the glamour of politics, and I thought, instead of being a clinical psychologist where I can only help one person at a time, let me get into politics, and I could help more people through policy. So I got my law degree with a Master of Public Policy at the same time, and I quickly learned I wanted no parts of politics. (laughs) So before you jot into something else, let's go back. Like, What was the part that you didn't like? Because, you know, a lot of people get seduced by it, you know? Mm -hmm. So. What was it about it that you didn't like? Yeah, so the thing that I didn't like was the lack of autonomy. I realized that if you're playing the game of chess, if you're on the board, you're still being manipulated, right? The people who are the politicians, it seems from the outside looking in that they are the top dogs, they're the true leaders, when in reality, there's a chess player moving those pieces. And I recognized in order to be able to compete in politics, I would need to swear allegiance to either the Democrats or the Republicans, and I don't identify perfectly with any of them. And I wasn't willing to give that up. But another reason in order to compete is you need to get money from outside sources. Those aren't just given out of the goodness of people's hearts. (laughs) You know, it's a quid pro quo. And I wasn't interested in playing. And there's a reason why they call it special interest, man. And really glad that you recognize that early on as opposed to being, because what do they say? Most people who are in politics now, they all started off with great intentions and then all of a sudden things changed them. So glad you didn't change, my man. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. But it left me with this, a bit of an existential crisis. Who am I? What do I want to do? I'm getting two degrees that I'm not interested in anymore. <laughs> what am I doing? And you got the loans to show it. And I, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Thankfully, I stumbled into a negotiation course and I fell in love with it because I saw for the first time psychology in the law. It's psychology for a business or legal purpose. So I was hooked. So they had this negotiation competition at OSU, which at the time when I applied, since I wasn't thinking about conflict management and negotiation, I didn't realize that OSU's law school has the second ranked dispute resolution program in the country, ahead of Harvard, ahead of Yale. Did not know that. So there was a negotiation competition with 55 competitors. It was me and another brother. We competed. And just because we were so competitive and also interested in learning, and we took the time to prepare, we won that competition. And that gave us the opportunity to represent the school at the American Bar Association competition in Ottawa, Ontario, the regionals. And we won that competition as well. And then we made it to the semifinals of nationals in New Orleans. And so I was hooked. So I knew at that point, negotiation was the thing. 
but I didn't quite know how to really execute on that. And it wasn't until I had the idea for the American Negotiation Institute, where I do trainings and workshops for professionals, where that desire, that passion was finally brought to light. Now, how long have you been doing this now, the Negotiation Institute? Three years. This is going to be my third year coming up. And only three years, and you've already seen success. I mean, you're working with big companies now. People are, yes. you know, purchasing your time. You're doing a lot of talks. That's pretty amazing, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm realizing that in a lot of ways, business is a war of attrition because there were a lot of opportunities to quit. You have the resilience to continue to push on, fail faster, experiment, fail, experiment, fail, and adjust. You can eventually find that success. And I know my wife was running out of patience for a little bit, but thankfully she hung in there. And (laughs) your wife is a physician also. She is, yeah. People say, well, it's nice that you had your wife during that time. I was like, yeah. But at the same time, she was in residency for the most of it. So (laughs) it wasn't like I had this huge financial cushion. So at the same time, I started my own practice, my law firm. So that's where I practice business law and estate planning. And so while I was building this negotiation institute, I was still making consistent revenue from the law firm. So it's been a journey and still learning and experimenting, but now it's really exciting to see it starting to click because I'm recognizing the audience, I'm finding my voice, and I'm producing a lot of free content that's been helping people from around the world. So it's been a fun journey. Yeah, around the world is definitely an understatement, man. Congratulations. On that. <laughs> Thank you. And that's why I have you on this show, because obviously your wife is a physician. So you know the lay of the land. You know that doctors, for the most part, are at least consider themselves at a disadvantage when negotiating. So let's start from the get-go. Let's just make this a one-on-one. What exactly is negotiation? Tell us the definition of that. What does that mean? Yes, as a good psychology nerd, we have to have an operational definition. So the definition that we will use here is any conversation where somebody in the conversation wants something. And so it is intentionally broad uh, for a couple of reasons. First, a big part of people's struggle with negotiation is a lack of negotiation awareness. They don't recognize when they are in a negotiation. And so you could have all the skills in the world, but if you don't recognize persuasive opportunities, you won't be able to take advantage of them. And so with that broad definition, you recognize that negotiations are everywhere. So you wake up in the morning, you have a significant other, you're negotiating. You have a child, you're negotiating. You're with your staff, you're negotiating. With patients, you're negotiating. It's never enough to simply be right. We can be right all we want, but if we can't then persuade somebody to adopt our recommendations, then what's the point? And so let's start there. That's negotiation. And then the other side is conflict management. Again, very simple and broad definition. A conflict is a negotiation with attitude. So there is an emotional element that serves as a barrier in the conversation that makes it more difficult to work through. All right. Well, thank you very much for setting the foundation. So now that we got the understanding of negotiation, in terms of your experience, all the knowledge that you know, like what is the correct way for negotiations to occur? Like how should it be? Should it be an ebb and flow? Should it be a situation where I win, you win, or just one person wins? Take us through that. Yeah. And I try to avoid terms like win-win because sometimes it's a situation where you don't need to give up anything. It's just a matter of whether or not you can persuade somebody. And persuasion, taking it back to, I believe it was Aristotle's definition, is the ability to get somebody to do something or believe something that they would not have done or believed had you not talked to them. So we're trying to move people. And so if we go in win-win, 
thinking, oh, it needs to be a win-win, we might make concessions when it is not persuasively necessary. So I don't like coming in with very rigid formats. One thing I would say, though, is that persuasion is best when it's undetectable. So the way that I'm talking to you is the same way I talk in my mediations. That's the same way I talked in my podcast and the same way I talk in my negotiations with opposing counsel. This is me. It needs to be rooted in authenticity. So you don't need to adopt a new voice. You don't need to be Olivia Pope if you don't do monologues. You know, you can be you. And I think that's a critical part because people can tell that you have shifted into persuasive mode. Naturally, they put up their defenses because nobody wants to be sold something. People like to buy, but they don't like to be sold. They want to take ownership of the process. And by approaching it in a way that's authentic, then you can utilize these persuasive techniques in a way that's imperceptible so you don't run into unnecessary resistance. All right. So, all right. Don't take this the wrong way, Kwame, but you've been doing this for years. You got mad experience doing this. You are an expert at this, but the docs who are listening right now, they're like, man, I can't get to that point. How did you get to that point? Like, what is your recommendation? How do I know that I'm shifting into a persuasive voice? Like, how do I make this move? Right. So here's what I would say is when you're in these situations, you need to recognize what your goal is. Where are you now? Where do you want to go? And what's the gap between those things? And then you start to formulate a plan. Best case scenario, you see these things coming. And so you can come up with some kind of plan. I don't even freestyle these conversations. I take the time to prepare. And your tool of choice is going to be a term called compassionate curiosity. And so this is a term that I coined in my book, Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Use Compassionate Curiosity to Find Confidence in Conflict. That's in the show notes. Thank you. Appreciate it. And so the process is really simple. The first step is acknowledging and validating emotions. The second step is getting curious with compassion. And the third step is joint problem solving. And it is intentionally a simplistic framework because I recognize that the majority of people are not going to have a deep bag of tricks when it comes to persuasive techniques. That's the first thing. The second thing is we understand that when the HPA access is triggered, we're not at our cognitive best. And so when you're in a difficult conversation, it's unlikely that you will have the mental acuity necessary to find a high level technique. So what I'm trying to do with this framework, the compassionate curiosity framework, is to raise the floor of performance, give you a system that will protect you from going too far (laughs) under when it comes to your ability to perform. Can you give us an example of that? So you were talking about acknowledging first. Take us through the steps of, and give us an example of what you mean by that. Yeah. So when it comes to this, the framework was actually created out of necessity. So I have a three-year-old. So he was in a situation where I did not want to take him to school. But Whitney, my wife, was a doctor. She has to get to work early. And I was with Kai and I had to take him. And it was always a battle. And so he started getting to this point where he would start the day by telling me, people who he loved more than me. So I would wake up and I'd say, all right, Kai, time to get to school. And he'd say, I want mommy. And I was like, I know, I want mommy too, but she's not here. Let's go. Then he would cry and I would want to cry. It was just, you know, a daily battle. And then it started to escalate. He would say, I want mommy. Mommy's not here. I want grandma. Okay, that's new. Grandma's not here. I want Uncle Kobe. Uncle Kobe is my brother who lives in Cincinnati. (laughs) Again, not here. And then he crossed the line at this point when he said, I want Buxton. And Buxton is my brother's dog. (laughs) So it's like something's got to change. Something is going down the gauntlet. What's up? (laughs) Yeah, this kid. 
So I read this book called How to Talk So Children Would Listen and Listen So Children Would Talk. One of the things they said is that you need to acknowledge emotions. And I thought that was lame. As an attorney, I thought that was lame. I want something a little bit more robust, but I was desperate, so I tried it. So the next day, I tried it, and this is what happened. He said, I want mommy. And I said, oh, Kai, you want mommy? He's like, yeah, I want mommy. And then I said, you love mommy, don't you? Yeah, I love mommy. You wish you were here, right? Yeah, I wish you were here. Can you just yell, I love you, mommy? And then he said, I love you, mommy. And then I was like, all right, Kai, are you ready to go? And he said, yeah, I'm ready to go. And so it's incredible. And it made me realize that even outside of this familial context, when I go to my mediations and negotiations with opposing counsel, I recognize that there is a very significant difference between an emotional need and a substantive need. So Kai's issue was purely emotional. He didn't want or believe that I could make mommy appear out of nowhere. So me responding with a fact, with the truth, was utterly unpersuasive because it wasn't a substantive need. It was an emotional need. Now I get it. Yes. And so what's critical is during these conversations is that we need to learn how to acknowledge and validate these emotions without agreeing with them. And so acknowledging the emotions is naming the emotion and letting them know it's okay to have it. Validation comes with the understanding, demonstrating to the other party that you understand where they're coming from. You might not agree on where they are going with their behavior and the outcomes, but you can understand how they get there because humans have a fundamental need to be understood. And once you're able to overcome that emotional barrier, it makes it a lot easier to accomplish your substantive needs. But if you don't recognize that there's an emotional barrier, you're going to keep running into walls and saying to yourself, this person is crazy. I'm saying these facts. They're not getting it, but it's because you're not speaking to the right part of their brain. Okay. Now, your wife is a physician. She's an attending now? So she's done with residency. She's uh, an assistant professor, first year of her uh, general family practice. Now, did you, did you have to use any of those techniques together as a family with the hospital to kind of get what you needed, what you wanted? With the, her contract negotiation? Yes. Yeah. And so the thing was, and here's an important part. The beauty of the framework is that it is flexible. So it's not a rigid one where you go, all right, one, two, three. Depending on the needs of the situation, maybe you started compassionate curiosity. Maybe you have all the information and you know the person really well. There's no emotional issue. Then you just go to the problem solving stage. And so with her, she already had a really great relationship with Ohio State. So that wasn't an issue. It was just coming down to the numbers. One of the terms that's critical in negotiation theory is called BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And so I hear that a lot. Yes. And so it's critical. You are only as strong as your weakest option. And so one of the things that I told her to do was even though she wasn't necessarily sold on some other practices, it was important for her to accumulate some offers so she could see what the field is and play them against each other because it comes down to a financial decision. It's a business choice, right? And so at one point, they weren't coming up. And so we said, all right, well, it's been fun, <laughs> but you know, we're going to move forward, but we still want to have a good relationship. When you utilize a walkaway, the walkaway tactic can't simply be theatrical. It can't just be a ploy or a bluff. You genuinely do it. Is that something you do all over email? You do it over phone? Like, what's your recommendations on this? Because yeah, I've, I've used this before. I've done it over email. You're the expert. I want to know what's the best way to do that, to walk away. Depends on your relationship with the person. If it's a really close relationship, doing it over email might be akin to breaking up via text. <laughs> that might cause some serious relational problems. 
And so if it's a more personal relationship, then I think it would be better to have that personal conversation either over the phone or in person. If it's more of a transactional type of deal, doing it over the email is fine. But I think it's important to make sure your tone is correct. And so there are tactics you can use when negotiating via email to put you in a better position for success. And if you want, we can talk about those too. Yeah, let's go into that because I think that is the fault that most physicians do, right? We go on an interview, you've seen it, we go on an Mm -hmm. interview and then our contract gets sent to us via email. Most doctors, including myself, I have to speak from personal experience, not very adept, not very strong at doing negotiations over the phone. I can't lie, some emotions may get involved, so I do it over email. Mm -hmm. Not sure if my tone is correct or not, so I've done negotiating over email before. From what I've been hearing, I don't know if that's the correct way. So it'd be great to hear your tactics on this. Yeah. So here are a few tips you can use. I did a full episode on negotiations via email because it's critical. A lot of these negotiations, like you say, happen over the web. So the first thing is studies have demonstrated that people who take the time to engage in a little bit of small talk up front have better results when it comes to email negotiations. So if you know something about their family, the weather, or what you did this past weekend, anything, you can put it in there. You know, it's, we just are coming off a of polar vortex here in Ohio. So that's always a topic of conversation. So I'll throw those things in, just pleasantries up front. And then, so that'll be the first paragraph, maybe one or two lines. And then you jump into it. First of all, you start off with appreciation. I really appreciate the offer that you gave to me. I truly admire your organization and I appreciate the conversations we had, blah, blah, blah. So you demonstrate appreciation. And then you say, however, based on the other offers that I have on the table, those offers would put me in a better financial position. Now, this is if we are executing the walk away. This is after we've already negotiated a little bit. And so then you say at the end, you're like, listen, if anything changes on my end, I'll be sure to reach out and I want you to feel open at the same time to reach out to me if circumstances change on your end. And so this is what's called the no sandwich technique. Full episode on how to say no. The way you do it is you sandwich a no between two yeses. And so in this case, the first yes is a yes to putting yourself in the best financial position possible. Then it's a very brief no. And then you say at the end, it's a yes to the continuation of the relationship and leaving the door open to continued negotiations. I love it. Okay. Exactly. And so this is a format you can use with friends, family, and at work. It's a very easy way to say no in a clear way, in a way that makes the other person feel appreciated and doesn't damage the relationship. So here you're saying, yes, listen, the yes is to the better opportunities, quick no. But at the end, you make sure you open the door where it's like, if something changes, I'll come back. And if something changes on your end, you'll come back. Because if you simply just say no, and it was their bluff, and then you call their bluff, and they say, oh my gosh, now he's gone. He's gone forever. I can't just come back. Then he'll know that I was messing with him (laughs) with this offer. What you're doing is you are building the golden bridge for them to retreat on. That's the tactic. You want to leave the door open for them to adjust their position while still saving face. So they can say, you know what? I talked to somebody internally, and we found a little bit more money. Oh. Cool. Okay, great. I like that. I like that technique. I want to take some steps back. We got basically the post-negotiation, or I guess the analysis of the negotiation or the results of the negotiation taken care of. Let's take a step back into the actual negotiating now. What if you're not confident in negotiating? Like, What are your recommendations to get better at it? For example, you are just coming out of residency. You're looking for a job 
and you want to start negotiating, but as most people would do, they will go and get a lawyer. Do you recommend going in that direction, getting a lawyer to negotiate for you, or do you recommend doing it yourself? I would say do it yourself because it's not that hard. And I say that because for me, this is a new thing for me, not new, but this is something that I had to get over. And that's why the book is called Nobody Will Play With Me. It harkens back to an experience on the playground that ended up making me a people pleaser as an adult. And so the reason I'm so passionate about teaching people how to negotiate and manage conflict is because I was profoundly bad at this (laughs) this skill. So the way that I overcame it was that I used the fundamental tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy. So being intentional about exposing myself to the stimulus that I find to be scary. And that's the difficult conversation. So for instance, I would go to a coffee shop and this happened before. I went to a coffee shop and it was my birthday. And so they said, Mr. Christian, happy birthday. Here's a free pastry. So I was mentoring a kid and I said, well, I'm here with my mentee. Can he have a free pastry too? And so I set myself up in these situations. Pushing it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so this is called rejection therapy. And so I'm putting myself in intentionally uncomfortable situations because the fear is always the fear of rejection. It's a social anxiety, right? And so I want to put myself in positions to get that rejection and feel it and be stronger on the other end because it's like, no, I feel this rejection. I've had these difficult conversations. Then when the situation comes about, I'm ready for it. And what's funny is that a lot of these times when I'm intentionally trying to get that rejection, I get what I want, (laughs) which is crazy. So in that case, I did get the pastry. But at the same time, whether I got what I wanted substantively or not, I still got more and more confidence. So we need to take the opportunity to practice in these situations that are innocuous because it'll prepare us for the conversation when it actually does come. For me, I would be nervous to like mess up something. Like what if I miss out on like, if I do it myself, I miss out on, you know, 5,000, 10,000, you know, high net worth professionals, you know, maybe even higher than that. Like, what do you say about that? Yeah, there's always a risk when it comes to how well you negotiate. And I think one of the main things to recognize is that it is nearly impossible to truly evaluate how well you've done substantively because there's going to be information that you are lacking. So you might never know what their budget really was in this situation. That's the truth. But like I said, you could lose out on those things, but it takes a lot of preparation and the development of the skill to be able to do it yourself. And I'll say this, a lot of lawyers, they will negotiate daily, which is good. If you look back to the studies, you remember the 10,000 hour rule study on how you get better. One thing that people often miss is that it's not just 10,000 hours in general. It's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. And so just road to experience can get you to a certain level, but you'll plateau. And so what I found in giving these continuing legal education credits is that it's really interesting how little time they take to improve this skill intentionally. So there might be a perception of increased expertise, but it might just be increased confidence and confidence isn't always correlated with abilities. And so I think over the long term, when it comes to, yes, there is this singular contract in that in question right now, but over the course of your lifetime, you'll be better served by taking the opportunities to engage in these difficult conversations and negotiating for yourself. The last thing is with the method that I propose with these negotiations, I really simplify it. Because I think a lot of times the issue is that we overcomplicate the process. And instead of thinking about negotiation in terms of me going in there trying to get everything that I want, if we change it to say, you know, what this is first and foremost is an information gathering exercise, it really takes pressure off of you. 
because we need to first get information. And with this method that I'm teaching, it is based in curiosity. So you're going to do less talking than the other side. You're going to be asking more questions. And if you ask the right question at the right time in the right way, you can create a logical path which helps the other side or leads the other side to persuade themselves. Well, since you brought that up, is it true that whoever talks the least wins? In a lot of cases, yes. And so I talk about the 70-30 rule that I follow. My goal is to get the other side to be talking 70% of the time. Because if this is happening, I know a few things are happening. The first thing is the other party thinks they are in control. The second thing that's happening, I am in fact (laughs) in control. Because think about this. So, Nee, in this conversation, who's in control? I think I'm in control, but I know you're going to... No, you're right. You are in control. You're asking the questions. I'm doing a lot of talking, but I'm only talking about what you want. Psychology. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Yeah, no. So this is an example of you engaging in a good negotiation because you're asking great questions and I'm following your lead. But I feel Now I get it. Now I get it. And so since I feel safe, I'm more open and I'm willing to give a lot of information, which is important. And then another thing is you can't convince anybody of anything, but you can create a logical path which allows them to convince themselves. And so if you ask the right questions at the right time, they can unilaterally change their position because people like to feel ownership over their decision making process. If they feel as though they've been manipulated, they will resist simply to assert their autonomy in the situation. And now a word from our sponsor. Meet Dr. Arthur Cummings. He's a busy ophthalmologist practicing all the way in Dublin, Ireland. Recently, he finished physician CEO. Check out what got him to jump on the transatlantic flight to participate in this program. My initial response would simply be just do it. This is one of those programs that is so good. It's very likely to be the best education you've ever received. And you realize then as a physician, how little we really know about our businesses, even though we're running businesses that are quite large. And the level of training is so fantastic. Education is so good. The faculty is immaculate and you're in a group of people who are like-minded. So just the entire environment is an amazing learning experience and really a good incubator for growing your practice. So if you're a physician who's looking to start your own venture or even lead your practice or department, then you can't afford to miss this opportunity. Class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Okay, good points. Good points. Well, let's go through some scenarios because that's what your show is really known for is you go through these scenarios. So let's do something easy. Let's start easy. Okay, physician is negotiating with hospital. This is, I'm assuming, going to be a transactional type of experience. Let's say the biggest hiccup is salary. Mm -hmm. Hospital is offering, let's just use regular numbers. Hospital is offering $100,000. Physician wants Mm -hmm. $150,000. What's your recommendation for the physician to properly, you know, using your techniques to come back and give a counteroffer and go through the entire negotiation process the right way? Okay, so first thing is, and a little bit self-serving here, but also generous, I have a free negotiation guide. So if you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide, you can download that guide. And it has a salary negotiation guide in there, but also a general negotiation guide and a conflict management guide. And the reason I say those things is because the first step needs to be thorough preparation. So the guide gives you a systematic approach 
that you can use to preparing for your negotiation. So that's the first thing. So you prepare thoroughly. You have a lot of information. You've done your research. Not only that, but you also have questions that are prepared for the conversation. So if you'd like, what we could do now is you could play the role of the hospital and I can be the doctor. I finally get to be in a power position. All right, let's do it. <laughs> okay, Dr. Kwame, here is our contract for the position. This is, you know, our contract that we offer. Let's say your role is family physician. So we're offering you $100,000 with, you know, three weeks of vacation time and blah, 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 blah. Do you need any more information or? Yeah, no, this is great. And first of all, Nia, I appreciate this offer. I've admired your hospital for a long time and I appreciate the opportunity to work with your team. What would help me at this point is getting a little bit more information. So when it comes to the salary, what flexibility do you have on that number? That's the salary that we offer to everyone. That's a good question, though. I wasn't prepared for that one. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm just going to say that's the salary that we offer to all of our doctors. Obviously, there are some gradations based off of experience. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. Okay. And you mentioned gradation. What do you mean by that? So, you know, obviously a doctor who is 15 years with experience is going to get paid a little bit more just because of their expertise as compared to someone who's coming out such as you. Okay. And that makes sense because experience is important for sure. What other factors do you consider other than experience? Other things that I think we would consider, I think outside of salary is if you would be interested in taking on additional roles. Let's mm -hmm. say, for example, you would want to be medical director or director of some small little committee or something like that. Maybe we may start to increase or provide some additional reimbursement for that. Okay, interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? There's a committee on infections, on, let's just say, uh, urinary tract infections. And that's a big deal. Obviously, the more infections that occur from a urinary tract standpoint, the federal government's not going to pay. So we need someone to head that up. We may offer an additional reimbursement for that. Okay, no, that's very interesting. You saw the resume, you know me, I'm a workhorse, <laughs> probably more so than my wife would appreciate, but that's the way I am. I would really appreciate opportunities to, first of all, help us in our mission to fight disease and move the healthcare profession forward. And like I said, this is a very respected organization and I love that opportunity. Based on what you've seen thus far and your particular needs, where do you think I would be best suited when it comes to helping us move forward in those leadership capacities? Right now, we don't have anybody heading up that committee. But from my experience, it seems as though the majority of people who take that position are more experienced physicians. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm just assuming that if you came in as a new physician, you'd want to kind of, you know, get into taking care of patients. And then maybe later on in a couple of years, you start worrying about getting into those committee positions. I don't want to impose that on you, but I just think from my experience as a hospital administrator, that's what most physicians do. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. And first of all, I want to say I appreciate you sharing this information with me because it helps me to make a more informed decision. As you know, I've been interviewing with a lot of places and I have a ridiculous amount of student loan debt. I'm from California, so I would say hella student loan debt. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so in this situation, honestly, the money is it plays a big role. And so that's why I ask about the flexibility. And I'll be honest, of course, I wanted to get closer to the $150,000 to $175,000 range. That was my goal. If we can get closer to that, that would be incredibly helpful. But I don't want you to feel pressured to make a decision right now, because I know it's not just you who makes this decision. There are other people involved. So how about we do this? 
maybe we can reconvene on another day, maybe tomorrow, 3 p.m., and we can continue the conversation. How does that sound? That sounds really good. I'll have to go back and talk to my superiors about this. I do, I have to admit, I think 175 is a little bit pretty much outside of my range. I don't Mm -hmm. think I can offer that. And maybe even 150 may be outside of the range also, but I'm open to discussion and looking forward to talking to you tomorrow. I appreciate this because I know there's a lot of pressure on you internally, but knowing that you're willing to go to bat for me in this way, I truly appreciate that. So thank you. Okay. All right. So that's the nice administrator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We do this again as someone who has standard contracts because that's a big thing now, too, is a lot of hospitals say this is a standard contract. There's no negotiation. So, yeah. And quick thing. Do you want to do a quick breakdown of the strategies I used? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go yeah. in. Yeah. OK. So the first thing was starting off with my favorite question in salary negotiations. What flexibility do you have? And then silence, because nobody expects to <laughs> ask that question. All of the questions that I asked were either open ended questions or what I call open ended statements. Like, tell me more about this. So I wanted to give you space to elaborate. And there are going to be times when you ask a question that's really good and the other person kind of stumbles, but you need to wait and let them work through that because there's important cognition happening under the surface. The other technique that I used was asking general questions and then getting more specific as time went on. So that's called the funnel technique. And so I want you to provide me with information that I can aim at because I don't know where your flexibility is or where that comes from. But by asking you, well, what type of things could potentially bump me up? That's where I started to focus on and ask questions more specifically. And then the last one was an anchor, but I used a soft anchor. Instead of specifically saying 150, I gave a range because the range is more palatable. And I intentionally knew based on the parameters of this. Oh, and my research, my robust research from before that I knew 175 was not within the range. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to say a quick no, but utilize the contrast effect to make 150 look a lot more palatable. And then at the end, recruiting you essentially to be my friend and teammate through this process, creating a common enemy, which is the bureaucracy. And so saying, thank you for going to bat for me. And so when you go to talk to them, you're remembering, I said, thank you for going to bat for me. And so you're going to be in more likely then to advocate for me in that role, then we come back the next day and see where we are. I love it, man. That was amazing, actually. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that was really it. good. That was really good. So, all right. So then let's up the ante. Let's make it more difficult. I'm going to be more of a difficult hospital administrator now. Mm-hmm. Oh, the one thing I want to ask before we move on then is, mm-hmm. so you get the contract and you notice there's an issue, you should just request to do it over the phone then, I'm assuming. Rather than yeah, do. that's what I would do. One of the things, too, that can alleviate a lot of pressure is that you can take baby steps. It doesn't need to be done all at one time. And so going into these conversations, knowing that you don't necessarily need to commit to anything allows you to be a lot more fluid in this conversation. Because I figured uh, based on where you currently were at the beginning of the conversation, it would be a bit of a leap to get you to commit to something that was that drastically different in that conversation. Because the word no offers protection. And if you are unsure about what the future holds, you will say no just to guarantee the security and certainty and lack of ambiguity that comes with maintaining the status quo. So I don't want to invite that by pushing too hard. Wow, man, Kwame Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to this scenario then. Okay, so, all right, Dr. Kwame, here is our contract for the family physician. We have a standard contract that we give to all of our physicians. There's really not much room for negotiation, so just wanted to send you our standard contract. I'll say the same appreciation thing that I said at the beginning. 
One thing I heard you say was there's not much room to negotiate, but that makes me realize that there is a little bit. So what flexibility do you have within the standard contract? There's really not much flexibility. Obviously, we give the same contract to our family docs as we give to our neurosurgeons, as we give to all a bunch of different specialties. The difference would be the salary. But to be honest with you, there's really not much room. Most of our doctors all do the same thing, although they may have different levels of experience. They all do the same thing and get paid the same amount. Okay. When you say there is not much flexibility because most of the doctors do the same thing, what different activities other than experience could lead to flexibility within the contract? Well, right now, currently, we have our nurses that are in charge of all the different committees, and they're doing a great job there. Most of our family docs, as well as our hospitalists, internal medicine doctors work as hospitalists. So it's pretty much shift work. They come in, they take care of patients, and then they go home. Every now and then, they are on certain other committees, but it's not really reimbursed at all, actually. So, mm -hmm. so maybe I should correct my word. There's really no room in this contract from a salary standpoint. And that's how we've been able to keep our overall costs low. That's how we've been able to pass on those savings onto our patients and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's one of the things I admired about this particular hospital is the fact that you are efficient, probably more so than the majority of hospitals, which I can definitely respect. And I can see how the standard contract plays a role in that. Maybe what would be helpful is to kind of take a step back and talk about overall vision for the hospital. Where do you see the hospital going in five to 10 years? Well, I think this hospital will continue to increase its market share, continue to provide excellent care for the patients that we already take care of, but we want to continue to expand, right? Mm -hmm. We want to expand to the metro areas of the town and, you know, just become basically the market leader for healthcare in this area, in this region. That makes a lot of sense. And given the framework that you've created and going back to that efficiency, I feel like this model is replicable and it does have the potential for expansion for sure. Now, when it comes to expansion, what type of things are you looking for specifically, tactically to achieve that? Well, obviously, we want to recruit more physicians. That's why you're here. You're an excellent physician. You're highly trained. So we need more physicians like you here. And then also at the same time, we want to continue to have our patients feel like the quality of care that they get here is second to none. So that mm -hmm. although there's multiple options here within town, we want to continue to make it be known that Hospital X is the standard of care here. So I think recruiting more physicians, having more physicians here, but also at the same time, continuing to provide efficient quality care is our way to become a market leader. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to recruiting more physicians, what barriers have been in your way? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the biggest thing is the region that we're in. I think we are in a suburban slash rural area. So it's a little bit difficult to get people to come to this area. Okay. No, that makes sense. And I will concede too, as a city slicker, as they say, I had some hesitations when it came to making that step to considering this as an option. I have other options, but again, it's the business efficiency and the potential for growth of this organization that drew me to this area. You mentioned earlier that there are some committees I love business. Of course, I love medicine, but I think the business side of things is really fascinating to me. And what I'd be interested in exploring is how I could play a multifaceted role within the organization, not just with my responsibilities as a doctor, but also when it comes to helping you to fulfill your goal and your vision of growth. I think that's an excellent idea. I think it'd be great to have more physicians in the committee 
or in these committees. To be honest with you, if you were to, to be on a committee, I think that'd be great. You'd be the first one to do it. I think we'd be open to that. Definitely. Yeah. And I'd love to blaze the trail in that way. How about we do this? Let me brainstorm about this and talk about some possible strategies we could bring to the table and maybe we could set up another call. Sure, sure. We have some additional interviews coming up. So yeah, how about this? We'll get together and determine when's a good time to talk. Do you want to talk tomorrow? That works. I'm good. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So let's do a breakdown. So yeah, you did a good job. That was not easy. I was trying to stonewall you, but you were good too. (laughs) (laughs) This was really good. So here's what I saw. This is the way I did it. First thing I want to introduce is another theory called the light theory of negotiation. Have you heard of that one? No, I haven't. Yeah, I made it up. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best way to become famous, actually, is to name something in your own name. Exactly. That's in the book. And so essentially, I think about, use the metaphor of entering a dark room. So if you're entering a dark room, the first order of business is turning on the lights because there are different traps. There are different dangers that lie. You might run into somebody else. You could hurt somebody else. And so in a negotiation, the first thing we need to do is turn on the lights. And that's information. We need to acquire more information before we start taking shots. And so I tried to go down a similar path that I went the first one and you did a good job of shutting it down. And so I was trying to go down the funnel and then I realized very quickly, listen, that my original technique was not going well. So the questions were getting more specific, but I was seeing less and less opportunity (laughs) during that path. So I'm like, screw this, we're starting this over. So I went back to the top of the funnel with an incredibly broad question. Say, well, okay, let's take a step back. Let's talk about vision. Very broad. So I want to see- That was excellent, actually. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. And so it's like, all right, great. Now I see their vision. Now I'm talking about something that gets you a little bit looser. You feel a little bit more open. That's good. So now I've gotten the free flow of information going again, and I'm looking for more opportunities. And I start going down a new funnel and I see more opportunity and more fruitful pastures. And so from the beginning of the conversation, you said doctors don't sit on committees. And so I got you to a point where you said, you know what? You could sit on this committee. And so that's a win. I'm going to take that win. (laughs) I'm going to move on to the next conversation because the gap between no and yes is the amount of perceived risk that the other person has. And so agreeing to something and making a move that is perceived as risky. And given how really rigid you are at the beginning, I am anticipating that you have a very small tolerance for risk. So I'm going to take this win and I'm going to use it to generate momentum for the next one. That was really good. That was really good. Because even I was sitting there, I'm like, I'm just going to stonewall him the whole time. And even you got me to pull back and be like, okay, well, obviously, I see where he's taking this. Obviously, our weakness from a hospital standpoint is recruiting. We're in a suburban rural area. So I like that. That's really good. And I, one thing I did notice about you, I have the pleasure of being able to see you. Like you never lost your cool any moment. Like emotion did not play a role into this. You just kind of just, it just felt like you just had a plan. And if plan yeah. A didn't work, then you were able to back up and go to plan B or plan C. Exactly. And I think that's the benefit of this framework because it is very flexible and it's designed to take pressure off of you. And recognizing that I don't need to get everything right now, I'm okay with aborting this conversation. I know I can end it at any time. The negotiation ends and begins when you say it does. So if you're done negotiating, the negotiation is over. And so what I often do is if that path, if that new path didn't work, I would say to myself, well, you prepared, you tried, didn't work. (laughs) Let's go back 
and let's regroup and come up with a new strategy. And so I'm completely okay with just stopping it and saying, this is good. Let me think and come back. So when do you know, like definitively, you know what, this is just not going to work out anymore. I've tried all the options. It's time to just walk away. When do you reach that point as an expert negotiator? So for me, it takes a bit of, first of all, reading the other side when I feel like they've reached their limit. If I feel like you're getting to the point where maybe we're pushing up against time, where you're starting to get a scarcity mentality with regard to the time ticking, that means that I, just by my sheer presence and continuation of the conversation, I am the one that's causing you that pressure. I don't want you to associate that negativity with me. And so if I see, read body language or hear something in your tone that makes it sound like you want to leave the conversation, I'll let you leave especially in a situation like this where I'm receiving an offer. You've already told me I'm the prettiest girl at the dance. (laughs) So you need to wait to hear my response to your offer. You asked me. So in this situation, I would have been ready to let that go if your affect changed significantly. And then on my side too, when I start to feel as though I'm running out of options, so like strategy one, plan A didn't work. Okay, I have plan B. I have a contingency plan. Maybe I have plan C. Whoa, plan C didn't work. Let's regroup. If I feel like I'm running out of things to say or questions to ask, I'm not going to risk freestyling this because the stakes are too high. So I want everything to be calibrated and calculated. And so having the confidence in knowing that I can stop and try again helps me to maintain my cool over the conversation. The amazing Kwame Christian, man. This is amazing. You host... The podcast, Negotiate Anything, like I said, it's on the front page of Apple Podcasts, the iTunes store. Let's be honest, like negotiating can be kind of dry. Like what's been your secret to success? How have you been able to become so successful with your podcast? I think because I was dry at the beginning, I am like, everybody else sounds like this. I should be like this too. (laughs) But I realized that fun is a key aspect of this for me. I genuinely enjoy this. And so if I'm not enjoying the content, I'm just not going to post it. So focusing on things that I find interesting, people can see and feel that energy just because I'm genuinely curious. Another thing is recognize, it's important always to recognize the barriers, uh, the biases that are against you, but also to recognize there's some biases that work for you. As a young black male, there is a cool bias. (laughs) People will generally interpret things I do as cooler. All right, great. I'll lean into that. And I will be a little bit more relaxed than most people would in these situations. Because whenever people have negotiation seminars or a negotiation class, very few people are like, man, I'm excited about that. (laughs) It's seen as dry, like you said. For me, I recognize that I benefit by showing and being vulnerable and showing that I'm still learning, number one. And number two, demonstrating my exuberance and how excited I am about that because it feeds into their excitement and being willing to shift from purely education to what I call edutainment. Now, I think about the news sources that are most popular right now. It's satirical news. You're not just going there to learn and see what's going on in the world. You're also there to be entertained. And so a willingness to do that, I think, has led to a lot of receptivity by my audience. Hey, man, take another moment to let the audience know, one, about your podcast and where they can find out more about you. Podcast, Negotiate Anything, the book, Nobody Will Play With Me, and also when it comes to your interest in bringing me in to do a workshop for your company or attending a workshop, you can check out the American Negotiation Institute.com. And this was a great, great workshop that we did. I actually have some more scenarios with you, actually. So 
do you mind if I put you on a spot? Will you mind coming on the show? Yeah. Maybe do like volume two or volume three of this? Because oh, I think man. it's so phenomenal. You know, taking it from a, not even just from a negotiating with a hospital, but even from, you know, content creators. And I'm sure you said you have advertisers on your show. Like, how do you negotiate certain rates? How do you negotiate deals? It'd be great to hear your thought process on that. Absolutely. I mean, essentially, you just invited me to come over to your house and just eat candy. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll do that. That's fun, man. All right, man. It was great having you on the show, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for the invite.